Rob Lustrin, and happy to be here in Athens for this great event. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, our firm, Reed Smith, represents owners, lenders, private equity funds, and many others who invest in the shipping industry. And our topic today is named Investing in Shipping, which is quite a broad topic. And I hope, hopefully, we can learn a little bit about what's going on in the general rubric of investing in shipping. Um, as we just heard from Dr. Stopford, it seems like it's, a, it's going to uh, require a great deal of capital in order to uh, deal with the energy transition. And we have representatives on our panel from across the spectrum of the industry, investment bankers, uh, investors in shipping and lessors, and a shipbroker as well who can help us to understand what's happening in the investing market and the dynamics there. So I'm pleased to introduce our panel to you. To my left immediately is Crystal Volpicelli, the Managing Director and Head of Maritime Investment Banking at Citi. Jim Sorenza, Managing Director at DNB Markets. These are investment bankers, of course. Uh, Gigo Ravano, who is the Executive Chairman of IFCOR Galbraith, one of the most prominent ship brokers on a global basis. Uh, Christian Richley, Managing Director of the Maritime Division of MPC Capital, um, who, of course, has done quite a bit of investing uh, in their own right. Uh, and all the way down, Paulo Almeida of Tufton. So welcome all. Glad to have everyone here. Um, I suppose, again, the overall theme will involve funding the energy transition, or perhaps you know, our investors are not thinking uh, along those terms, but we want to see how the alignment of investors, you know, owners that need funds, and, uh, you know, the alignment of those interests uh, are really happening today. So we have a lot to cover. Let's get started. And let's start the discussion with our investment bankers. We'll, perhaps we'll just go right to left from my perspective. Krista, um, maybe you can help us address some of the broader dynamics of investing in the shipping industry today in terms of you know, the, the different, um, different markets and uh, who the investors are and what's driving the market today. Okay. Um, happy to give some perspectives and then I'm sure Jim will also have some views. Um, when you look at the, the broader equity markets in 2022, um, Overall markets saw a lot of loss in value across most sectors. Um, we saw, you know, with everything happening in the world, um, there was a rotation out of growth. Growth stocks um, disproportionately fell in value compared to other sectors. Um, the one bright spot of 2022 and kind of leading in today is everything energy, energy related, energy related shipping. Um, and the dynamics are, are quite positive in terms of some of the underlying fundamentals, which is really what investors are looking for. They're looking for making money and seeing growth. And so I think the fundamentals are quite interesting in, in certain sectors of shipping today. We are seeing renewed interest. Um, it certainly helps that many of the public companies, as they're um, making significant profits, are rewarding shareholders with, with some of that capital. And so, you know, there are there are definitely uh, more investors coming to the table today than we've seen in a while. There's also a growing private capital market for the shipping sector, and you see it in infrastructure funds who are investing in 
um, sectors that have more contracted cash flow, such as LNG and some of the LNG-related infrastructure. You're seeing it with hedge funds, private equity funds. A lot of different types of credit funds um, have emerged um, that have been putting dollars to work. So really across all spectrums, um, you know, there are, there's different ways uh, to find dollars depending on what your objectives are. But, Jim? So put 22 in perspective, uh, we've had 53 straight weeks in the U.S. where U.S. equity active managers have lost funds. Last week was a little over $3 billion. The week before was a little over $3 billion. 53 straight weeks. That's a record. Um, the institutional funds raised more cash in September and October than they have in over 20 years. And they bought puts in the fourth quarter at a rate that's never been seen before. So part of the rally that we're seeing right now is a short covering rally. Um, we've got puts that are expiring and we're, we're coming off of, you know, beginning of fourth quarter, 6.3% cash among institutions, 25% cash among retail, at least 20% of that cash in both categories has been put to work. So we come off a year where high yield issuance down a little less than 80%, IPOs in the U.S. down 95%. But it, as Christy said, everything touching energy has worked. We did a capital raise yesterday for seed drill. We did a convertible bond two weeks ago for board drilling. We raised money for XPRO. There was a placement in uh, Hofni that was five times oversubscribed about three weeks ago. We've done 20 energy-related roadshows to New York and Boston in the last six months, and despite everything that these clients have participated in, two weeks ago the Boston clients told us they still view themselves as underweight energy. And as much as value versus growth contracted last year, this was only year two of what feels like a really long cycle. You've got an enterprise value for shipping versus EBITDA, which is in the low to mid single digits. For energy, it's at six. And for the market, it's at 13. And for the tech and expensive sectors, we're just a shade under 20. So the gap in valuations is still great. And once again, everything that touches sort of energy materials, including shipping, clients have been paying attention to. Sorry for the long answer. Uh, Jim, that was very interesting. Thank you so much uh, for your perspective on the market. Why don't we just turn to the, um, the investors a bit. Maybe Christian, if you want to uh, take a minute and discuss for us, uh, you know, tell, tell the audience a little bit about what you're doing and how your investing strategy fits with what Jim is talking about, the energy transition, and in particular, um, how, that, how, how what you're doing seems to fit in with either you know, research and development or other projects that uh, ship owners are looking to accomplish under these circumstances. I think for us uh, at MPC Capital, where we are significantly exposed to container shipping, and we are also the largest investor behind MPC Container Ships, a public listed company in Oslo. Um, the situation is a bit easier in a sense that uh, container shipping is fairly close to the end consumers. And in that sense, I think it is uh, also easier to put dual fuel ships on the water and actually drive and, and then shape the decarbonization. 
and uh, that's also reflected by the investor appetite, uh, referring to what uh, has just been said. I think we have uh, the advantage that you can put very long-term charters on these ships, so you can mitigate the investment risk of uh, new technology. And I think an example are probably our methanol-powered ships, um, which have 15-year charters and are backed up by 15-year COAs. That's the kind of certainty you get um, when, you, when you're looking at uh, a container ship uh, business. And it's obviously um, meeting also investors' appetite. We've put these ships in, in our public listed vehicle, but um, I think there are other projects uh, currently in discussion. I think uh, the more challenging part for us is really the, uh, the debt financing on these ships. We have been a bit disappointed on the willingness of, of traditional banks, especially under the Poseidon principles, um, to, to support these kind of investments. Um, but I think in terms of energy transition, uh, to really do something, um, it very well fits uh, also investors' demands when you have long-term secured cash flows. And that's also looking at the container ship order book, I think the only sensible thing to do at the moment. Thanks for that. Maybe, Paul, if you could maybe address the same question from your perspective, which, which is a little bit different, I assume, based on your portfolio of investments. Uh, yes, so we, uh, we at Tufton, um, in essentially all, all of our funds, we pursue a uh, diversified uh, strategy um, where we were up to 50% container ships, even a bit higher um, a couple of years ago. Um, we've rotated out of container ships um, in nearly all of our funds, and, and now we're about 50-50 um, tankers, tankers and bulkers. So part of our investment strategy is the importance to be able to move, reallocate capital from some market segments to others based on a number of factors, not just what we think about the market, but charter coverage, gearing that's available, um, and, and, and other factors. Um, so that's what we um, that's what we have been doing in terms of decarbonization. I think what um, Christian and his colleagues at MPC and MPCC um, have been doing is great. Um, it's a good start with two um, methanol-powered um, container ships. We currently are are contemplating whether we will do something similar to that in terms of in one of our existing funds to take start building a position in um, alternatively fueled vessels or to pursue another strategy which is actually to start a new large fund with a couple of institutional uh, investors most of our capital comes from european pension funds focused exclusively um, on that strategy and i think that this is an area that we're going to be quite active in later later this year it's a it's a it's a great um it's a great time to be an investor in shipping both in vessels that we can improve fuel efficiency for but also um as as um as christian christian said but also what, what krista touched on is matching institutional capital that's looking for more predictable lower returns and cash flows from long-term charters and, and matching that with charterers who want also predictability and stability of, of supply of vessels, but also the ability to use future fuels. So this is going to be a very, very exciting area, I think, for all of us over the next couple of years. 
Okay, thanks very much. Uh, Gigo, let's turn to you on the more on the broker side. So now you, we've heard a little bit from the bankers about the overall state of the capital markets primarily, and a little bit from the investors on what they're looking at in terms of matching effectively charter coverage and what I assume is the uh, horizon of the investment. But what are you seeing just on the ground from a brokerage perspective um, in terms of, I guess, of course, the different spectrum of your clients? Um, private, public, what are you seeing? Well, first of all, um, the, the environment is still extremely um, interesting. And uh, despite a lot of volatility, in the last two years with great markets in many segments, um, extraordinary times probably for some, um, the environment and the outlook at the moment is still very much prone to uh, invest. And as much as people would like to see slightly more setback and uh, there are some concerns and flags, um, we see a lot of uh, buying interest. Um, and not that much concern uh, in, across the old segments, including containers, um, you, you've been testifying to that. Um, and it's um, you know, not often that you have uh, such a uh, uh, framework where, yeah. and context where all, all the different segments offer opportunities of investment. So it, at, at the moment, um, some segments require probably more coverage than others. Um, some segments are naturally more prone to coverage than others. Um, but all, all of them, uh, and specifically in uh, dry bulk, there's a lot of uh, uh, underneath demand in, in buying ships across all asset classes. Um, so it's definitely interesting times. And while there are some flags, especially this year, especially short term, the outlook for the next three to five years remain pretty confident. Thanks very much, Gigo. I just now I'd just like to go back to the bankers again and hear a little bit more about your views on the various shipping sectors. Um, we've heard a lot about the tanker industry in light of uh, what's going on in Europe with Ukraine in particular and the various changes in, in routes and, uh, and things of that nature. But I'd also like to hear a little bit more about what you see as investment opportunities, either in specific projects, such as maybe wind, offshore wind farms in the United States. That's been a big topic of conversation lately. So maybe, Jim, if you want to pick that up first, and then we'll move on to Krista. Yeah, it's a good thing we raised all that money for those uh, wind vessel companies back in 2021. We would have struggled in 22. Um, the ESG crowd in the U.S. Uh, has been hit pretty hard in the last two years. Their funds under management, which were growing at a very fast clip, actually shrank last year. Um, so the ESG-related projects, the wind-related projects, um, we, struggled, we struggled in early 22, but we got a lot done in 21. Europe's a different story. Europe, we've, Europe the, uh, the assets have held up much better. They grew a little bit last year. Um, it, we were able to get some things done from a sort of wealthy individual or retail point of view, as badly hit as the U.S. retail investor has been. The, 
the Nordic retail investor or Norwegian retail investors in a, in a pretty healthy place. Um, segments, yeah, the, the, you know, if you go back 12 months ago, there was a little bit of capital raised in containers. Um, that would be a struggle if we had to do it today. Merce certainly had an interesting uh, forward guidance uh, yesterday morning. Um, if we, uh, we did a lot in LNG last year, uh, everything in LNG got done, including a couple of IPOs from Accelerate to Cool Company. Um, this, once again, the sentiment for everything that touches energy is still, is still very good. Uh, sentiment towards tankers uh, is very good. You know, one segment where I'm very bullish and, and sell-side analysts are very bullish, but the buy side doesn't see it yet, is the uh, dry bulk space. You know, we, don't, we all know what the, what the you know, order book looks like, and uh, we all have our guesses as to what the China reopening is going to mean, and it's encouraging when you see iron ore go from 80 to 120, so at least you know there's demand for metals and, 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 and et cetera. Um, but the, uh, the buy side not convinced yet on dry bulk, and I'm hoping that inflection point uh, comes pretty soon. Thanks, Jim. Chris, just a similar question. Um, what are you seeing in terms of sector dynamics uh, in your practice at Citi? As I think as well as I'd be interested to hear, do investors automatically link shipping as an energy play in light of the energy transition that's going on? I know that Jim just mentioned that anything that touches energy seems to be attractive to investors. I'm just wondering whether shipping overall as a is recognized in the investing community as an energy-related play? I think we would, um, <clears throat> most investors would put into the energy bucket things like tankers, LNG, LPG, um, when you start to talk about container ships, dry bulk. Uh, certainly there's the energy transition story in terms of what's happening with fuels. Um, but I, I wouldn't put that in terms of how investors think about categorically kind of energy versus versus not. Um, look, I think that I, I agree with a lot of Jim's comments. We're spending time across the board. It kind of depends by segment. You know, one of the you know blessings of where we are in the sector is a lot of companies don't have a need to raise more capital because they are making a lot of money. Um, Jim mentioned valuation multiples still look you know, quite low, both relative to historic, relative to the rest of the market. And so from a shipping company perspective, the idea of raising new capital if your valuation is not at a place um, that could make use of that capital be accretive, you know, that does hold, hold people back, particularly when you're generating a lot of cash to be investing in some of these new projects. So I would say that's the, the constant debate, of course, in cyclical sectors, um, when you know the, the time to raise capital often is the time when you don't need it because things can change very quickly. Um, and so that's the debate we often have. Thanks very much. And now let me, let me turn back to, let's maybe Paula will start with you. Um, I know that you have a more diversified outlook, but what, I would be interested in with regard to what you feel and you're seeing in the decarbonization uh, area, how far along are we down the road? We know that there's a pretty aggressive campaign, both regulatorily uh, and by 
and just in, in the industry generally, um, to decarbonize, we've heard a lot about it. So that's well, you know, been the topic of the day. Um, what do you think the real targets are um, from your point of view, and also from you, the people that you're dealing with? Is it is it more or less aggressive than the IMO targets uh, that we're seeing? Um, I, I think that um, it's going to become apparent if it isn't um, already. Um, over the next few months or few years that the um, the IMO ambitions need to be much more ambitious. Um, we at Tufton were one of the first couple of dozen or 20 um, industry players, including some big charterers, some big ship owners, Marist, for example, who committed to be net zero by 2050 and to invest in zero emissions vessels by um, by 2030. Um, that's where the industry really needs to be because if we don't figure it out for ourselves, someone else will figure it out for us and tell us what we need to do and it may be much more expensive and much more painful if we're told how to do it rather than we figure out um, how to do it. I think it's becoming um, consensus amongst the experts or some of the leaders that shipping probably needs to have between 5 and 10 percent um, very low to zero carbon fuel usage around 2030 to be on the beginning of an S-curve that gets the industry to, to net zero um, by 2050. There's been an incredible amount of activity um, in the past 18 months or so since Maersk first committed to green methanol. Um, green methanol is not going to be the only fuel. It will be a very important um, one in the mix. And there's a lot more the industry can do, not just with green fuels, but wind assistance, biofuels, slow steaming, um, all sorts of low-hanging fruit that can probably get us 10 to 20% of the way there over the next five to ten years. But um, I think we all have to realize that the industry has to get to net zero by 2050 or else someone's going to tell us how to do it and it's going to be expensive. Thanks very much. Christian, I can expand on that. Sure. I think, um, they, let's not forget when we look at uh, this topic, um, there were numbers out and we've seen earlier from, from Martin what it actually means to decarbonize. He has an example of the very large container ships and the amount of windmills and the loss of energy um, we're looking at. It's up to 75-80% when we produce or when we take green energy and essentially produce green methanol. Um, that's, that's quite a staggering amount and we're looking at that numbers. Let's not forget that the whole to transfer, uh, transition the whole industry. We're talking about a trillion, 1.5 trillion, that's the numbers I've heard. But 85% of that is going to be onshore, that's on land, that's the refineries, that's the infrastructure, that's everything started with the windmills we've seen. Um, even if we only look at the 15% left for shipping, and that's the number we look at when we need to build dual fuel ships in future, we're still looking at some 200 billion. Um, that's an enormous amount. But I think to kick this off, um, I mentioned earlier the longer contracts, and I completely agree to what Paulo said. 
there is a lot we can do with the ships which are in the water today. But what's also needed to finally make a few more steps here is unified regulation on a global level, uh, which really works. If we're looking at the ETS proposals, um, if all aware, if you've seen that the ETS introduction in Europe, um, including shipping in the emission trading system, has been delayed from this year, was supposed to be a couple of weeks ago, uh, to be introduced. And I think we will all have scratched our heads a bit how we actually pull this off, because there's a lot of things still lacking. But now we're looking at 2024, and at the same time we hear about an emission trading scheme going to be introduced in the UK, uh, China thinking about it, US are thinking about it. That's actually one of the nightmares we have at the moment, and we look at all this, and we're starting one voyage in one regime, and pass another one, and end in a third one, and how we are actually able to pay all these uh, emission trading, or pay a hand in these emission trading certificates is, is a mystery to me. So regulation really needs to be clear and straightforward, and then we should also stick to the timelines. Thanks very much, Christian. Gigo, I know Christian just mentioned dual fuel ships. Uh, we've heard that mentioned a few times and in other panels today. Um, how do you view the market for dual fuel ships from your point of view? Um, and is, is, is it very vibrant? Are people, uh, you know, owners, you know, looking to diversify into dual fuel at this point, or are they still waiting to see the eventual rollout? I think um, all these topics, uh, all these yeah, comments, they all tie up one another. Um, regulation, unclarity, uncertainty, technolo technological evolution, no real adequate solution, supply chain uh, for those new energy, uh, it all ties up. And uh, yes, there is a lot of interest, um, well a lot, I should probably measure that. There is interest, but the, all the surroundings around that are not clear. Um, uh, several companies are looking into methanol, seems to be more uh, the, um, the solution going forward. It used to be ammonia, it was LNG. I think different sectors of the industry, shipping industry will require different solutions. I don't think one will fit it all. Um, and the consumer, the user, the charters, the industrial uh, using the ship uh, are not clear too. Often they are not specialists. And the lack of regulation and the lack of, lack of clear technological direction doesn't make it easier. So it's, on one end, uh, interesting. Um, it's, a, it's an inevitable, inevitable evolution. I think it will take a lot more than we have probably in the industry, uh, not hoped for, but certainly um, probably planned for, um, so it will take longer time for this to be rolled out. On the other, um, this is actually positive for the industry because the new order book, the new building programs, the rejuvenation of the fleets that the industry goes through, it certainly slowed down a little bit because of it. Um, it's not easy to keep investing in new builds, uh, no matter the sector, uh, four, five, six years down the line when that comes um, without having a clear, um, a clear solution. So you, you might be spending a lot of money for something that might not actually be adequate or usable in the way it should be. Uh, so, so that's good because it refrains from building up. At the same time, there's a lot of money that is attracted by 
the space. Uh, so there is an underlying need, as we said before, and I agree completely with Krista uh, and Jim about it, um, that there is interest in the spaces and there are opportunities, and on the energy front as well. The big question is, how will that tie up? And I think it will take a few more years to be cleared, which is supportive to the industry. Gigo, thank you. Uh, I'm just going to turn back to Jim, just to the right of you uh, for now. You know, I'm thinking about green financing and sustainability-linked products, and I know that you've spoken about those quite a bit uh, over the last year or two. You know, given what's going on today, it seems like some of those initiatives have been a little bit less uh, popular. You just mentioned that some of the ESG investors have uh, not necessarily uh, done as well as they had initially projected. Um, what's the state of the green financing and SLB market now, and is this something that we can look forward to, or was it a flash in the pan? Listen, it's been a setback on the equity side in the last year, year and a half. But it hasn't been a setback on the fixed income side, and, and we continue to do sustainability-linked bonds and bonds connected to green projects. And, you know, it's... Bloomberg did a study that uh, they believe the price, there's a pricing differential between doing a sustainable bond versus a bond. And so unless you bring two identical bonds to the market in the same week, it's kind of hard to prove it. But we're, uh, we're starting to see a difference in the pricing. And so it's, it's more work. Um, it's working with someone like Sustainalytics. Um, but we get a bigger audience. And in some cases, we've been able to upsize deals that we originally didn't think we would be able to. And in some cases, we've been able to get better pricing. So I don't think we've seen the peak of the effects on the uh, fixed income side. Chris, I'd be interested in your perspective on the ESG story, green financing, and uh, whether we can expect to see a greater expansion of that in the coming months and uh, throughout 2023. Uh, it's a theme that's not going away. I, I agree with Jim as, as you think about, particularly on the debt side, um, you know, we've had bonds in the market that had a sustainability link and, you know, you, you might get two different funds or two different pockets of capital within the same institution, which just adds to the demand for the overall book. Um, the more oversubscription that you can drive in a process, the better pricing and terms that you can get. So it's not something that's going away. There's different flavors. You can fund specific projects. You can have um, linkages to things that you're doing internally to drive uh, some of these initiatives as well. So if anything, I, I do think it's becoming more prevalent. Certainly there's a big focus across investors with energy security, but it doesn't mean that the core focus on ESG is, is going away. Interesting. Um, Christian, are you observing a, a focus more, obviously, on use of proceeds of the investment, meaning applying the proceeds towards some of these type of projects or in vessels that are either dual fuel or, 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 um, or other uh, clean burning fuels? Um, or, or, or are you actually looking for targets, actual achievement of targets over time and, and pricing differentials as targets are achieved? Well, it's, it's probably more the other way around. Um, I think we, what we're trying to do in the moment is we're trying to diversify a bit more of our activity. So we're looking at uh, 
at the whole cluster around us. It's not only the charterer anymore. And I mentioned that on the on the other example, where actually the charterer is backed up by by long-term COAs. Um, we need to talk more to the shippers. We need to talk to the providers of the green fuel and actually we also invest there so we have for example invested in Ineratech which is a synthetic fuel producer um, and if they're already producing fuels which you can burn in airplanes or in cars today and I think these kind of things are super important for us to better understand so also to better being able to track um, the availability of things because essentially we foresee that the market as it is today um, will change. The average ship owner, and alluding to what Martin has said earlier, I think he quoted, uh, or he was mentioning two people in a technical organization of a ship owner, that's indeed gonna be very, very challenging because to fully understand the whole concept and also looking at new models to employ ships, where ships may be employed not in a usual way with a charter, but with a fuel, for example, included, and, and ships as a service concepts, etc. That's a lot more complicated. Um, but we're having this talk. We're trying to diversify um, our sort of uh, infrastructure in that sense and our opinion a, a bit more with these exchanges. And um, then I'm sure there will be more opportunities which we can develop. Uh, Paulo, maybe you have a comment as well on some of these sustainability-linked products and whether that's even something that you're that you're thinking about when you're deploying your money with regards to to ESG and, and sustainability um, I think at least in the UK market where we raise um, a, a lot of capital both privately and and publicly we have a London listed um, fund as well as raising a lot of money from UK pension funds um, it's a significant prerequisite for maybe five years, plus or minus a bit, to be able to manage money in the UK um, that we have significant decarbonization targets, other ESG matters as well, like crew, crew welfare has been a big uh, issue. It was all over the press a couple of years ago during COVID. Um, we don't need to talk about it in any detail, but clearly a lot of us have had issues around Ukrainian and Russian crew that require sensitivity um, and, and making sure people either get home or stay on the ships um, as they wish. These things are incredibly important. Um, again, I'm, I'm speaking primarily from, from the UK market um, in terms of a couple of very large long only investors um, but also some of the most of the pension funds that like a lot of institutions they've had shipping pitched to them nonstop since 2009 um, by all sorts of people and um, not too many people other than Tufton actually raised capital in that UK market and we think that that is one of the keys to success is uh, ESG, it's, it's not universal. I think it's less important in the US um, or it depends on what part of the US, I guess. It's less important in Texas, more important in California, perhaps. Um, but I think it's, we're on a one-way train. Maybe the train slows down a little bit in 2022 like it did, but um, it's a, it's a one-way path to more sustainability. 
Thanks. Um, Gigo, maybe you have some final thoughts uh, on our discussion today. Um, what, what, what can you add to that in terms of expectations from uh, you know, participants that you're dealing with and how that interplays with folks that are coming into shipping for the first time as new investors? Well, as Paolo, I think, said it well, it applies a lot to dry. Yeah, it feels the train is slowing down, um, and I think it's just a temporary slowdown. And I think we're going to have um, interesting um, uh, markets ahead. Of course, the last two years have been frantic across all the different segments of the industry, but um, it's, um, as I said before, it's a market that has a lot of opportunities in front of us, and um, investors will come. Some might be shying a bit in, and dry. Some of our are slow to come back, but uh, there's a lot of opportunities. So it's exciting times ahead. There's one segment we haven't really talked about, which is also pretty interesting. It's the offshore wind space for all the good reasons we talked about before and Professor mentioned, uh, underbuilt industry that has a lot of potential as well, a lot of demand uh, coming in the next 10 years. Um, so plenty of opportunity in the shipping space and not only in the mainstream traditional one. Uh, so fun time ahead. Thanks, Diego. We're somewhat short on time. Um, Krista, if I may just turn back to you. In light of the macro uh, uh, economic factors, uh, primarily in the United States with uh, uh, you know, interest rate increases that look like they may continue, the stronger jobs report that came out recently. Um, how is this going to affect, you know, a resurgence of the equity capital markets? Do, do we have any visibility at all on that? Or is it, are we really in a period of stagnation where there's not a lot of visibility? Well, I keep forgetting to turn that on. Um, with respect to the impact on the equity markets, I think that certainly there are there's places where investors can earn an outsized return. There's also the equity-linked markets, which are doing quite strong right now. So, for example, the convertible market, has, we have seen a lot of interest from convertible investors for public companies. And it's been an interesting way for companies to think about raising debt with a cheaper coupon than you could maybe get in the regular way bond markets with interest rates going up linked to equity values and the investors who are coming into convertible bonds are you know some are fundamental who are investing for the equity story some are technical investors who are investing in the convertible bonds so that's been one market that has seen a direct impact from what we're seeing in the bond markets with rates going up because it can be an interesting way for companies to think about accessing a piece of capital that, that might be more cost effective. Thank you, Chris, and thanks to the panel. I thought that was a very sophisticated and excellent discussion. So thank you all. And I'd like to also extend my thanks to Nicholas Bornosis, Olga, and the entire Capitaling team for inviting us here today. So thank you all and have a great afternoon.